0: Hey there, Stylish ThoughtBot podcast listener. We're back with another ThoughtBot swag sale. For the rest of the year, you can show your support for our podcast with shirts, pint glasses, and even limited edition socks. We have two new designs specifically for giant robots and bike shed t-shirts that have only before been available at conferences. For the production and shipping, we are proud to once again be partnering with Social Imprints, who provide career opportunities and a living wage to people who need a second chance. So help support your favorite podcasts, provide employment opportunities for at-risk populations, and get some nifty ThoughtBot swag. Head over to ThoughtBot.com slash podcasts to place your order and show your support. And hey, thanks. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. I was in build system hell and lost track of time. (laughs) It's funny because as much as as people talk about writing Ruby Gems in Rust, Mm -hmm. the tooling for doing it is just basically non-existent.
1: I thought that was the Helix thing that, um, you know.
0: Helix is the only one that has a build system that works for me, but it doesn't support the majority of what I need right now. It makes some assumptions... I don't know if it makes those assumptions, but it is very much implements the things that are required by extensions that aren't gonna interact with any Ruby code outside of maybe what's in the standard library, but doesn't have things like, I have a thing that is a Ruby object, please call this method on that Ruby object, or any support for defining custom GC functions on your struct, which is gonna be, because it just assumes that, that you don't have any fields on your struct that are Ruby objects, and I have several. Basically, I'm trying to remove the attribute objects from Ruby's garbage collector um, in ActiveRecord. So like if, if you do a stack profile on Shopify, routinely one of the things that, that will be at the top is the constructor for these attribute objects, which has no logic, it is literally just assigning instance variables. Because these are all, you know, getting allocated on the heap and putting garbage collection pressure, but they're very—they're—they're they're literally structs. And one important thing is that they never outlive the active record object that they belong to. Mm-hmm. There are some methods that you can call that would give you a reference to them. That I'm just going to try and see if I can get rid of those without breaking anything, which I'm pretty sure I can. Other than our tests, which are there because like it's doing square brackets dot name because. Actually, there's nothing to get the name of it, but uh, it's doing like square brackets dot value instead of fetch value because I wrote that test before I wrote the fetch value method. But anyway, so like if they, you can't, if you can never go to reference these objects and they're really only there to make the code like nicer to write and nicer to maintain and they never outlive the active record object, then they shouldn't need to get garbage collected. They can just be, we can just have the one object be doing Ruby garbage collection stuff and then it'll just clean up all of this stuff when it gets freed because it has exclusive ownership over all these objects. So I'm I'm trying this out as a plugin. Not it's not going to replace the pure ruby version. We'll always just be like a, hey, you can use this gem and it will and it will make your app faster if you are using MRI. Like fast blank. Like fast blank. It's called fast it's called Rails fast attributes. Okay. <laughs> I'm not actually sure that this is going to to cause any significant improvement. They'll still be heap allocated. They just won't be garbage collected, which I mean, heap allocation is fast and we can do a better job of pre-allocating when we need to. So We'll see how well it works, but um, the build systems, there are two options for actually writing the code that integrates with Ruby, which are Helix and Ruru, and both of those seem to just make a ton of assumptions that aren't what I'm trying to do. And then there's a build system that's just a build system called Thermite, which just does, appears to not work for Max, and also assumes that you won't have any Ruby code in addition to your native code, which is not the case.
1: Okay, so step one is you have to write a build system that does exactly what you want it to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, for now, I finally got to the point where just I read through the rake task that Helix provides and pared it down to like as little as possible so that I know the exact compiler flags I need to pass to uh, compile it on my machine just once or manually rather and then where that file needs to live and how to make that work. For whatever reason, Ruby wants it, the extension to be .bundle instead of .dialib. Which right. is an extension that exists, but apparently you can just rename a dylib to bundle, and that works fine. I don't know why that would work, because I'm pretty sure a bundle does other things. I have no idea.
1: <laughs>
0: it looks for .so on Linux, which is the standard right. yep. dynamic library uh, extension, but it doesn't look for .dilib on Mac. Hmm.
1: Okay, and this will just be a thing I can plug into my Rails app someday and make it a little bit faster.
0: Yeah, if it works out the way I think it will, it'll be about five to ten percent gains for most apps. That's pretty good. And that's just off of what the stack profiler tells me. There'll, you know, it'll probably actually be a little bit more too because of the lessened GC pressure. But it's impossible for me to know exactly how much GC pressure is coming from these objects versus other objects. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Do you use those things? So, like I, I mentioned, like Fast Blank. Do you use Fast Blank on anything?
0: Shopify uses Fast Blank, I think.
1: I think I like it's one of those things that I know about, but then have never actually put on a project because I can't no, I can't imagine it having any impact on what I'm doing.
0: <laughs> unless you've run a stack profiler and blank showed up there. It doesn't even have to be high, but you know, unless blank showed up on their stack profile at all, mm-hmm. you have absolutely no reason to to include that gem. But if you'd run a stack profiler and you see blank on there, hey, why not?
1: Yeah, why not? I guess. And then the other thing the other thing that reminded me of is BootSnap, which is a Shopify thing. Yes. Which I also am aware of, but also have never used.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, BootSnap uh, is included by default in Rails 5.2.
1: Oh, okay. So for folks that don't know, BootSnap is just a collection of things that reduces Rails boot time of applications. Is that correct? Yeah.
0: Yep, the biggest ones being that it caches the uh, compiled Ruby bytecode. Uh and does a much better job of cache invalidation than something like Spring because it's literally just one file to one file. M you know, m time changes, no problem. But then it also, you know, does some certain things that are a little bit more intelligent, like your gems are not ever going to need to get recompiled.
1: Nah. They are if you're me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sure, if you're doing if you're doing bundle open. Bundle
1: open. <laughs> like what's this yep. gem doing? I don't know. Let me throw a binding.pry right in here. <laughs> Yeah, but it's one of those, another one of those things where all you do is add it to your gem file and it's supposed to make things faster. And that reminds me. I'm it just gonna... makes
0: your app boot faster. It doesn't make your app run faster. Right, right, right.
1: Which is important if you're just, particularly if you're doing TDD and things like that. Yeah. Um so I'm going to try that after this recording on my current project and see what happens
0: cuz that'd be pretty cool. I'm gonna double check that I wasn't la- I'm pretty sure we made it default. I, I'm gonna double check that that is all, that is actually true.
1: I recall hearing that and I guess you have to do more than just adding it to your gem file there's also like you re- you require it in a certain location. And yes, that, that's it basically and it has a few different things you can do you can tell it which environments it's active in you can Yeah, nothing. It looks like the defaults would probably all be totally fine for everybody
0: Yep, it was added to the default gem file in July Yeah, you've you you, you uh, have to require boot snap slash setup in config slash boot.rb instead of just adding it to your gem file
1: Yep, I'm gonna try that right after and then everybody who listens they can try it too And that can be their own little present
0: and then you can and then you can turn off spring
1: What if you combine the two? Then, I mean, then you then have you two have... layers of caching that can go wrong. Yes. <laughs> and then you can add uh, R- Russian doll caching on top of it and, you know, just have caches <laughs> all the way
0: down. <sighs> Luckily, caching compiled files is a... A solved a much, problem? I wasn't, I'm not going to say a solved problem because there are still plenty of C projects where make clean fixes your bug, but... Um, <laughs> It is much, much easier to do and much less likely to go wrong than what of this code do we need to reevaluate in this dynamic language based on the files that have changed. Yes, I will concede that as well. So that's what you've been up to? Yeah, I've been trying to do this for a while. And I originally was like, I want to just avoid heap allocation. Well, you can't ever avoid heap allocation for this, but um, unless your data fits in the size of a pointer. But uh I wanted to do some much, much fancier things with how I went about allocating these objects so that they were pooled even outside of an individual active record object and basically had an arena that was tied to the lifetime of a relation. And that turned out to just not be a thing that worked. So I kind of abandoned it for a little while and I'm coming back to it and I'm just coming at it much more naively like, all right, my goal is to not have these things get garbage collected Mm -hmm. and just write the most naive implementation possible and see if that shows any hint of being worthwhile. And then if it does, I'll go through, I'll spend a lot more time going through and making it actually, you know, manageable.
1: The episode that we just released that folks... So we record these things. At current, we're like three weeks out or something like that. So, um, But the episode that went out this week was about not using database cleaner, even though you're not using system tests, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of our listeners, Mac Schwenk, tweeted at me, and he said he was similarly confused about whether or not you needed to use database cleaner with uh, feature specs now that the changes have been made to Rails 5.1. And he linked me to a GitHub pull request in which he says... <laughs> This appears to be directly baked into active records. Does this obviate the need for database cleaner or other cleanup strategies in all feature test flavors or only if we're using Rails 5.1 system tests? And then somebody with Rails committer access responded with, you should assume it only affects Rails 5.1 system tests. If it affects other forms of tests, there's an implementation detail that may change in the future. And that person was Sean Griffin. (laughs) (laughs) As soon as you you said somebody with Rails commit, I'm like, oh, it was me. (laughs) So yeah, it's a conversation you had with somebody on the internet back in July But I'm gonna go ahead and rely on that implementation detail and say that it's probably not gonna change So,
0: you know, I mean if it changes you're definitely gonna see your test break. and then I'll add database
1: cleaner and it'll be fine Uh, I'll be sad, but uh, it'll be fine but tangentially there's this other thing that I've been dealing with now and that is Now that my tests are running with Puma My feature tests anyway, and maybe this isn't true in system tests, I don't know. I haven't tried it with system tests yet. But it used to be that if I wrote a feature spec and everything was running in test environment with WebRick, which is what the default was back in the day, that if my web process hit an exception, I would get that exception bubbled up through my test framework. And it would tell me like, hey, you got an application error. Uh, here's, the, here's the stack trace. Now it doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> so now I will, have a, I will have an assertion on a page that's like, expect page to have content signed in or something like that. And that exception will fail it'll just say expect it to have signed in does not here's what the page actually had right and, it's right, just and it just
0: like, has five internal server error
1: yeah it's a markup for the internal server error page what I've tried I was like what if I make sure Puma knows it can only run like
0: zero concurrency one thread right this is, it has nothing to do with Puma though
1: it doesn't okay can no, you tell me how to
0: fix this problem if you uh, need JavaScript in your in your tests you can't fix it it's never worked. Hmm. That's just the difference between using rack test and uh, the async drivers,
1: but these tests are mostly using rack test Right, and now it's not work. It's giving me that behavior
0: Did we used to run the server in the same thread? I didn't think we did
1: I don't know all I know is it used to like I'm it's one of those things where enough people have mentioned it And we mentioned it in like the Ruby chat room where I was like this this used to work, right? Didn't this work before
0: and people were like yeah. Yeah,
1: this this used to work and so I tried
0: making that change and doesn't work and I, like i remember like it not working in a ton of cases though and every time it's been you know it's been like your page contains internal server error i was like wait a second that's not how that's supposed to work but it's been that way at least some of the time since at least like for one because it seems like even if you're doing the javascript stuff
1: right the server could be executing in your thread it would be the client that's executing another thread right so the server could still report that like it hit an exception and it wouldn't have, like, the application error page because it wouldn't have access to that. But the server knows it hit an exception and can interrupt the test for that, right? Presuming that the, yeah. the test process and the server are running in the same
0: thread. I don't know. Do we know for sure if this is a thing that changed for you specifically in one?
1: No, we don't know for sure. Of course not. <laughs> uh, that
0: would be the question. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board because it
1: is. it is, and also, like, if it's the kind of thing that, like, this works fine in system tests because there's some sort of work that makes this happen then that's sufficient reason enough for me to be like, okay, everywhere where I have feature, we're going to turn that into describe and system tests and things like that because this is annoying enough that like my current client added this thing to, uh, wrote like a gem that extends Capybara in some sort of way to say like, to basically on every page load, you check for er- like, is this right. an error? Output it, if not, it's not. But they only did it, they like the way they wrote it, it only works if you specifically use a page object that we're using to like, run-through tests, which I don't generally like to do until something's complex, so
0: that's why Oh, there's a Capybara config Mm -hmm. Yeah, Capybara config raise server errors Alright, I'm gonna save everybody, although we did get
1: comments that people really liked our live test runs our (laughs) play-by-play during the test runs but I won't do that one, I'll, I'll file that away and try it afterwards, but raise server errors in the Capybara
0: config, huh? Hmm and that string does not appear in the Rails source code. All right. Well,
1: I'd have to set it up to fail in a certain way, so I'm definitely not
0: going to do it live right now. I mean, do you have... Well, it says it defaults to true, no. but do you have that explicitly set to false, maybe? Ag uh, raise server errors?
1: No, it's not even... It doesn't appear in my project at all. Let me check in the
0: bundle. You could also just do p raise server errors somewhere.
1: Doesn't appear anywhere in the bundle. Let me check the console.
0: I wonder if that also maybe just doesn't work with Puma.
1: But at least now I have something that I can pull out a little bit and say like, okay, why isn't raise server errors working? Not like why am I getting rendered error pages rather than exceptions? Like it's a little, it's a little more googleable Maybe I can find it. Yeah, yeah. It defaults to true, and it's true in my when I load up the test environment. So I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But I'll go back. But it was enough. Like it was just like, oh, this is something that used to work, and then it got me thinking like, wait, why am I using Puma in the test environment anyway? And then I was like, oh this probably has to do with action cable.
0: <laughs> uh, I think it's just everybody uses puma now.
1: Yeah, I mean, from a certain extent I appreciate it because it's like, well, this is the server you're going to be using in production, so maybe use it in your tests. Right. But like how far do you go with that, right? Like if in production you're running behind nginx, do you have to do you have to run your tests through nginx as well? Like to a certain extent isn't the thing that implements rack an implementation detail for you? Yeah. I don't know. I mean. We, we were discussing at ThoughtBot the like the days of yore where it was common to run like one database in production and SQLite in development. Uh, yeah. Which was, and we actually have a project currently that is doing that where they run Oracle in production and SQLite locally. And surprise, surprise.
0: <laughs> so that's the one case that I think it's probably okay because it's very hard to run Oracle in development.
1: Yeah, I feel like there's got to be some sort of local development environment for
0: Oracle, right? I have no idea I've never actually developed with Oracle. All I know is that like I can't actually run the tests for the Oracle enhanced adapter (laughs) So
1: Oracle has an Express Edition or whatever I'm sure it's a pain to set up and I'm sure it's probably somewhat incompatible with like Oracle 9i or whatever the heck they're on nowadays but I don't know. It's out there. But I could definitely, I was like, oh, yeah, if it it was Oracle, I'd probably try and do that, too. But it turns out that it's actually causing them bugs when statements compile differently between the two.
0: Yeah, that'll happen.
1: (laughs) Right. So the GraphQL episode that we recorded a while ago has gotten a bunch of... I don't know if everything came into the hosts at bike shed.fm email or if it's just a bunch of people emailing. I only got one, me. I think. I got a bunch of people emailing me talking about how, like, they're all, or emailing me or tweeting me and saying, like, basically they're also excited. And then people emailing me links to, like, different things to try because of the problems that I talked about having and wasn't sure how to solve. But I got one particularly good email from, uh, not that any of them were bad emails, but I got one very detailed email from Radoslav Stankov.
0: Yeah, that's the one that I got. That's the only one
1: I got. So uh, pretty detailed with links to all sorts of different plugins that we can check out. And one of the things it was a bunch of stuff about batching queries, things like that. Yes.
0: And the thing that I was looking for, which was GraphQL query resolver is the name of that gem.
1: Yeah. And I haven't I wanted to try that last Friday, but I didn't get a chance to give it a shot. But like, basically, if your GraphQL schema maps very closely to your active record schema, then you can try to use this GraphQL query resolver thing. But I'm not actually sure I want my GraphQL schema to map very closely to my Active Record schema. Sure. And if you were, maybe you would just skip Rails altogether and go with PostgraphQL, which is another <laughs> thing. So there's Postgres, which is like a REST implementation directly on top of Postgres. And there's Post PostgraphQL, which is the same thing for GraphQL on top of Postgres, which is actually like they've put a lot of work into it. It's not just like a like look what we can do kind of thing. Uh, right. We, we'll link to that in the show. It's pretty neat. But thanks for those emails and the tweets, et cetera, from folks. What else? I guess that's really it. what else, what else have we gotten for feedback that we want to talk about?
0: I mean, I, uh, people have apparently just been emailing you because I got one. On, <laughs> I got the one on gradual typing.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. What did I get in my personal email? Let's say I have a bunch of stuff. People, people went to my personal website and filled out my like contact me form some folks sent me like gists on how to do graphql batch stuff so i
0: guess that's not really much to talk about so for folks who don't know we we said at the end of every episode hosts at bike shed.fm is the email address that goes to both of us (laughs) sometimes people just want to send it to just me sean they don't want you to know (laughs) they don't want me to know about batching
1: oh my personal website also gets uh support requests for blog posts that i've written nice (laughs) and if you have sent me one of those you sent me something through my personal website for uh, with details on things like running capybara via headless chrome you should know that those emails are still sitting in my inbox which i keep as my to-do like hey i gotta get back to these people so it's not that it's not that i don't want to respond to you (laughs) it's that i have as of yet not found the time to respond but i will i try to respond to everybody that takes time to write it's not like uh i get a lot of email but anyway I had a little story. So, okay. if this episode goes out on the current schedule we're at, it'll go out the week of Thanksgiving or it may end up coming out the week after Thanksgiving. And I want to tell a little Thanksgiving story. So, somebody was recently asking me like how did I get into doing like Rails development? And I started thinking about the, an- the the answer to that question, and it turned out like I started thinking about where I was in my career before I got into open source development in general and Ruby on Rails development in particular. So I was working at Akamai, and I was working on this thing called Siebel. And some of the listeners probably know what that is. It's like this giant CRM that can do whatever. And I was working on the team that, that like, maintained Siebel for Akamai, which Akamai uses for everything from, like, help desk tickets to, like, managing where their servers are located and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it was pretty miserable <laughs> to work on a CRM like that because uh, there wasn't – like, it has its own IDE, and you just kind of, like – point and click a lot of it didn't really feel like much programming and then where where you got to do programming was inside its little ide you could write this thing called EScript, which was like siebel's EScript. it, it was very close to ecma script but not quite ecma script so if you can imagine writing a worse javascript inside of a terrible ide that you have to <laughs> compile to, in order to try it out uh that's what i was doing I I did a lot of development for that team. It was technically on the finance team and I did a lot of development that was kind of like tangential to Siebel where I was building tools that kind of extended it and interfaced with the database. And at first I was learning a lot and kind of interested and then more and more of my work transitioned to actually working inside Siebel and the team got rearranged and I was working for new bosses and things like that. And just kind of find myself just sitting there and being like, I guess, you know, I get paid. It's fine. I'm I'm a mercenary. And that's what I would actually tell people. I'd be like oh how's your job I'm like oh, I'm a mercenary they pay me good and uh you know and I kind of just thought that's how everybody's job was unless you were like super duper lucky that like maybe you wouldn't <laughs> hate your job right and so eventually my team got reorganized one last time and I got put under a new manager and this manager her name was Rebecca Rappaport within like the first couple of weeks called me into her office And she was like, what are you doing here? (laughs) Like, what would you say you do here? And I was like, what do you mean? What are you doing here? She's like, you clearly don't seem like you're particularly interested in the work we have you doing. And I was like, I think that's fair. I'm not particularly interested. And she's like, you know, I've looked at some of the work that you've done before here and other places. And it seems like, you know, like you should be doing web development somewhere or something else. Like, would you like to do that? And I was like... Yeah, I think I would. And, you know, to be frank, like part of what brought this conversation on was that like my performance review was coming up and it wasn't going to be so great. Like it wasn't going to be a great Mm. performance review. And so she kind of took the time to ask why that was, did the research and was like, people like working with Derek. And, you know, he has a good background and he has done good work in the past. Like what's going on? And kind of right. took the time to recognize that like, maybe it was just that I wasn't enjoying the work and just confronted that head on and was like, what's going on? Why aren't you doing the work that we think you're capable of doing and that you've done in the past? So she ended up recommending that I, she had this other team that reported to her, this other team of people. And and like, the amazing thing is like, granted, I think at this point I must've been reporting to her for like less than a month. I don't know. But she was just like, I have this other team that reports to me. They're doing this Rails project. I'd like to assign you a new scope of work new like collection of features that need to be done and i want you to learn rails and do that and like it totally reinvigorated the way that i felt about going to work every day you know mm-hmm. like i felt like a total newcomer because i hadn't done any sort of real open source development most of my development at that point had been like either in siebel which was awful or doing like microsoft.net development i'd done a significant amount of that beforehand and so it just totally like it was this new world where like going to conferences was a thing and like submitting patches to open source projects was a thing and like pretty soon after i had gotten you know put on that project and was 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 making some good headway and it took me a really long time to get in to actually deliver any of the features that we were talking about but i was learning a lot and like i was like wait you can write automated tests for things like that's where i learned (laughs) you, you could you could write tests for your software um i mean not really i had learned it but that's where the first time i had probably done it
0: <laughs> really you didn't do much of that in your dot net world
1: no huh. I, I played a little bit with n unit and right. so maybe i had written some n unit tests but just like it really did it like the fact that like a rails app get generated with a test folder really made me be like oh there's supposed yeah. to there's supposed to be something in here <laughs> <laughs> yep right and I remember like the code review for that was kind of funny because like it was exactly what I tell people not to do for code review it was like it waited until I had finished the entire scope of work and then we sat in a room and I put it on a projector in front of a bunch <laughs> in front of the other developers who had been doing rails for a couple of years at that point right and it was just like this seemed oh, like how you've grown <laughs> It was like this seemed like a reasonable way to do things but I remember I remember being so paranoid that like maybe this wasn't cuz I wasn't technically on that other team so like I would ask them a couple questions and they would kind of point me on my way and I was like is this how I could do this like I ended up using accepts nested attributes for I think like right after I had gotten merged I think I had to upgrade the version of rails to get to use it or something like that So basically long story short after she had kind of recognized this and put me on a different team she left on maternity leave and then ultimately I don't think she ever returned or she did return returned briefly and was no longer my manager or something like that and then moved on. So, despite the fact that like I've reflected a couple times on the fact that like she really did me a solid there and got me out of like that mercenary mode and into something I actually enjoy. I don't have a continuing relationship with her or anything like that, but I figured I could use Thanksgiving and the podcast as an opportunity to kind of say thank you and then send this along as like a very kind of public way. (laughs) Like, hey, I really appreciate the thing that you did for me there because, you know, now I go to work in a job that I like. And I think it's clear that I am engaged in what I do and spend time doing podcasts where other people take some time to listen, which is unbelievable to me. Speaking at conferences, all that stuff really has its roots in the conversation I had with her where she very easily could have just been like, we're going to fire you. We're letting you go today. Right? Like, like, I don't think I was doing that badly. But like, she recognized that I wasn't doing what I could do. So then the options there are like, okay, we're not getting what we think we can get out of Derek. So like, either we should move towards a direction where he's not going to work here anymore, because we should let somebody else come in and try and give us everything they have. Or, you know, we should try and figure out what's wrong. And she was able to figure out, like put her finger on what was wrong. So very like, even more than I had. Like, it wasn't like I was sitting there going, I'd be so much more engaged if they let me work on X. Like, I just really didn't know. And she was like, do this. I think you'll really like it.
0: And I was like, wow, okay, I do. I mean, it sounds like you just said you had a really good manager, which is, you're lucky.
1: Right, exactly. And that's what I kept reflecting on, especially now that I'm a development director here, is like trying to listen to the lessons of that experience. And, you know, there's nothing like hugely actionable, except to like, it's easy to look at maybe declining performance and be like, we've lost this person, right? Or like this person's no longer doing a good job and not ask like, well, why? Why aren't they? And she right. did a good job of asking why and not really blaming me when she could have just as easily been like, why didn't you say I'm not interested in this work anymore? Like, why are you continuing to do you know, work you're not happy with or whatever. And instead just kind of put that on the company itself being like, oh, we're not, we're not using you correctly, right? Which is partially true, but also definitely part of that was my fault and not speaking up and being like, hey, right. I think I can do more. I think I have more to offer. I think I can do something that I might like and the company might get good value of and somebody else can backfill what I'm doing here that, and they might like doing that. Because there are certainly a bunch of people who do Siebel development as a job, like from job to job and they enjoy doing that. It's not me. And so she recognized that and yeah, I definitely was that was one of the times in my career where I was lucky to have like just a really good manager. And I, it's it's kind of unfortunate that it was for such a short period of time <laughs> uh, and that I really haven't reached out to say thank you beyond this. And this will be, you know, I'll send this along <laughs> with that. So, yeah, thanks, Rebecca. So, yeah, if you're out there and you have a similar experience or something i guess what i would say is like take the you know the thanksgiving time to say thank you to the people that uh, have kind of moved you along in your career because that's what uh, i'm trying to do and also thanks for listening because uh every year around this we've been doing this now for like three years i think yeah uh
0: wow. yeah longer i think
1: uh, i think three years was like in october or something like that so yeah just, yeah so, that sounds about right so yeah and, and i was we were joking about whether or not we were going to release an episode over thanksgiving And it is funny because like every Thanksgiving, somebody tweets at us to say like they listen to like 10 episodes in the car on their way to whoever's house. Right. And I always instantly think like, A, that's really cool that somebody would do that. And B, I'm sorry for whomever else was in the car at the time. (laughs) Hopefully they were alone.
0: (laughs) I mean, definitely the thing that that started to blow my mind was when at conferences, people stopped coming up to me as much to talk about rails and started coming up more to talk about the bike shed.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. Um, keep doing that. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and thanks also, uh, you know, I guess we're in our Thanksgiving mood now. So thanks also sure. to to Tom for all the work he does editing this podcast together. There's a lot of times where <laughs> he has to do significant work to make us sound not incredibly <laughs> dumb. <laughs> If people only under understood how terrible we sound unedited He kindly edits out the part where we said something that on second listen, we probably would not have liked to have said So yeah, he does a really good job And I think that the professional quality that comes out in our podcast It's entirely his doing and I think it really does set us apart from a lot of other podcasts in the same area Absolutely He does fantastic work for, for all of our podcasts. You know, if you haven't listened to all of our other podcasts and go to thoughtbot.com slash podcast and listen to things there. Also, if the technical journey story earlier interested you, we have a podcast that's put out by Upcase, which is a Thoughtbot product that we run. That's uh, about people's kind of journey through their tech careers. And you can go to medium.com slash at Upcase to see all the episodes there i think there's a few of them out and there'll be some some more coming as well and you know tom does the editing work for all that stuff too so you can expect the uh, professional quality there too
0: (laughs) tom's a busy guy
1: yes (laughs) so thanks to tom thanks to everybody who listens thanks to thoughtbot thanks to shopify thanks to all of our guests everything it's etc
0: i agree with all of those things
1: okay show notes for this episode can be found at bike shed.fm slash 133
0: as always, rings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated.
1: If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bike or leave a comment on our website.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Adios. This podcast was brought to you by Thoughtbot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product, with local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York london austin raleigh and washington dc let's build something great together